forever. Dog. I could see nothing, but I could hear the audience breathing. The lights came up and I could still see nothing because I was blinded. I remember the thought going through my head, the play doesn't start until I say something. Welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from Speechless, The Big Bang Theory, or my role as the henchman Cavendish in Jumanji, The Next Level. Our guest this episode is Jim Beaver. Jim was on the short list of actors I wanted to talk to when we started this podcast, and I was over the moon to finally get a chance to do just that. Uh, we begin with a question about his last name and how it has changed over, uh, well, not his last name, but his family's name has changed over the years. And then we get right into Deadwood. Uh, we have stops along the way in the Marine Corps, Los Angeles Theater, Supernatural, uh, his work as a writer and a biographer of other character actors. It's a great talk. Strap in for this one. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jim Beaver. Hi, Jim. Hi. How you doing, John? I, I'm good. I'm so excited. Thank you so much for doing this. You're really, on a number of fronts, the ideal guest for this, this podcast. And, and we'll get into that for a moment why. But first things first, I read something on Wikipedia, which means I have to double check it with you. Uh, to see if it's true. Um, Beaver is a sort of corruption of de Beauvoir? Yeah. Yeah. You are related to Simone de Beauvoir? Somewhere back down the line. I mean, that branch of my family left Alsace-Lorraine in like 1610. So her family stayed in Europe. I suspect the the branch split a long time ago. But... um, she uh, she never mentioned me. <laughs> what, what? Why in God's name not? Why would she? Was she not a Deadwood fan? What is her problem? I don't know. I don't know. Well, I think she was Deadwood by the time it came on. So hey, oh, that uh, segs us gracefully to where I want to. I want to start. So let's talk for a moment about Deadwood. I, I, I rewatched the show. I mean, I did a ton of Jim Beaver homework this week anyway, but I had just rewatched the show. Well, that must have been a blast. It was. It really was. <laughs> um, but I, I rewatched Deadwood anyway last year. It's, mm-hmm. I think, the only HBO show I've gone through more than once. Um, and it's such an interesting piece of work because there's so much. I mean, HBO's brand was hauled, you know, antiheroes and moral ambiguity. And we think Swearingen's the bad guy. And then we meet Tolliver. We're like, holy shit, we didn't know how good we had it with Swearingen. And, you know, it, it, it right. constantly switching loyalties. But Ellsworth is this sort of moral center to the show. Did you find that? Was that something intentional? I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. It wasn't so much intentional on my part because I didn't write anything. No, obviously. But the phrase you used is uh, very interesting because while we were shooting the pilot to Deadwood, uh, I got into a, a, a brief conversation with David Milch uh, about the show and about my role in it. And he used that very phrase. He said that, uh, that, um, uh, Ellsworth may very well turn out to be the moral center of the show. Um, so yeah, you're not, uh, you're not far afield at all. I, I think that's kind of what he always intended. And of course, as he got used to working with me, you know, the character, uh, developed 
some of my traits and it became, you know, the most wonderful person on the show. Uh, <laughs> well, how so? How does he, I mean, cause Milch, Milch strikes me as a guy with a vision, obviously, who's got a very yeah. clear set of what he wants of these characters. So I don't hear much about Milch, the collaborator, um, in the people I talk to. I think in the sense of, in the sense that he is always, attentive to his actors in this in in by which i mean he's always looking at things we say and do in our real lives uh on the set in his vicinity that i think those things feed him and i think a lot of the characters become more like the actors as time goes on I don't mean necessarily our own personal traits in every sense, but uh, he's he's a magnet for our thoughts and actions, and he sees things that we do or hears things that we say, and he thinks of ways, perhaps subconsciously, of how that can inform and color the character. For example, I've never asked David about this, but in the first season... I talked to him about the scenes where Ellsworth was just beginning to make the acquaintance of Alma, the character played by Mark Parker. Parker, and who uh, I felt there was there was room for uh, some kind of a depth of relationship there in that. Uh, for the first time in many years, Ellsworth was in the presence of a stylish and sophisticated uh, woman. And while I didn't suggest anything about that, I remember on on the set one day talking to David about something that had happened on Hill Street Blues when he was on that show and how a character on that show played by George Weiner, who had always been sort of a subsidiary functional character in the DA's office, uh, uh, working with uh, Veronica Hamill's character. And somewhere around season five or six of that show, all of a sudden, uh, Weiner's character confesses that he's had this enormous crush on Veronica Hamill's character for years and it's it's kind of an inappropriate crush because he knows she's involved with uh uh, uh Trevanti. daniel trevanti's char- character uh but it became this very touching moment of oh this guy's not just a function he's a real live human being and i remember talking to david about how moved i was by that revelation long after we'd known the character for a while. And whether that made any impact on David or not in terms of Ellsworth, I do know that from that point on, he began putting in little things, little bits of business or little glances, and eventually more words relating to how Ellsworth related to the character of Alma. Uh, and uh, by the end of the next season, Ellsworth was married to Alma. And uh, 
I didn't see that coming at the beginning, but I did think about, is there some future here? Is there some way that Ellsworth can have this kind of uh, attraction to her? It doesn't have to be uh, reciprocated. But I do know that after I mentioned that story about Hill Street to David, those elements began to grow in Ellsworth. And um, uh, I, I don't think anything is a coincidence with David. Well, there's something there's something running through Milch's work. Mm-hmm. And I think he's kind of drawn to that sort of unusual couplings. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that's that's a sort of a, a trend in his work. Um, also love that you shouted out George Weiner. Love George Weiner. Uh-huh. Uh, the the character actor is character actor to a certain guy. What is he? He's, yeah. he's on he's on like his five hundredth credit at this point. God bless him. Yeah. Um, I've never worked with him, but we're friends, and uh, I love George. He's a wonderful guy. And the way I look at it, uh, it's because of him that I got my first on screen kiss. So uh, uh, it took uh, twenty years or so, but thank you, George. Well done, George. Well done. <laughs> That's great. What appears to me, if I'm going to stand all the way back and look at the long arc of your career, I see this person who goes from fan to historian to practitioner. Do you think that's? I think that's absolutely on point. I think that's uh, that they could put they could put that on my tombstone. I, I uh, no rush, but um, uh, I want to. It's not all that elegant, but it's it's <laughs> fitting. I think it's I, I think it's a, I think it's a wonderful thing, and I see a lot of it. Uh, in myself, frankly, which is one of the reasons I was so excited to have you on the show. At what point, because I know you, you've served in the military and you went to Vietnam and, and you had all these sort of uh, circuitous routes towards acting. At what point were you like, OK, I need to not just be a fan. I need to do this. I need to be in the things that I'm watching. It was was there a particular seismic moment? Was it sort of a gradual uh, realization? I can tell you the precise moment. Great. Hit it. Uh, um. I had I had gotten out of the Marines and was uh, in college in Oklahoma. I, I was already determined to work in the area of film history as a researcher or writer. Um, I was fascinated by it, but I wasn't. I I knew there wasn't much living in that, um, and I got sort of sidetracked into studying theater because there wasn't much in the area of film history in those days, unless you were at USC or NYU. And I got, I got asked to help a friend audition for the campus theater group. And, uh, and I had a great deal of fun just doing a scene, uh, with him. And then they asked me to join as a result of his audition. And so I thought, well, this will be fun, maybe. And then opening night of my first play, in college, um, the miracle worker. I had, uh, I had a very small part, but it was the first line in the play belonged to me. And I remember being on stage, uh, the curtain was going to go up and reveal us all in place on the set. And the curtain went up and this vast, auditorium of utter blackness. I saw 
I could see nothing, but I could hear the audience breathing and the lights came up and I could still see nothing because I was blinded. And I remember the thought going through my head. The play doesn't start until I say something. And that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was power. Okay. It was, uh, it was, this thing's going nowhere until I say something. (laughs) I have the keys, motherfucker. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And, uh, but in that moment of feeling and hearing the audience, but not seeing them, and that moment of power over the play, I thought, this is what I'm doing the rest of my life. I hadn't said a word yet, but I said, this is, this is everything I have ever wanted. And, uh, and it turned out to be true. And here we are. Almost exactly uh, 50 years later. What was that first line? She'll live. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> wow, that's layered. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, uh, I was the doctor who uh, was announcing that, uh, you know, the unspoken part of she'll live is there are complications, she'll be right? Deaf, mute, and blind, and bump into walls. But uh, she'll live. Um, and, uh, I didn't have a lot more to say in that play. Um, but I was on a path from that moment on, um, September or October of 1971. And, uh, I've never looked back. Well, I've looked back, but there wasn't much to see. Um, (laughs) so you, you, did you do, College radio, or did you work uh, in radio professionally? I it was a combination of the two. It was a college radio station, but I was paid for it. Oh, okay. I I was disc jockeying uh, at a college station, which had a very mixed programming. Uh, in the daytime, it was um, it was basically jazz and uh, uh, sort of forty style easy listening. And at night it was classical, and uh, and I was um, I was a nut for both uh, forms, and uh, so I had a, a jazz show in the afternoons, and at night I had a classical show. Who were who were some uh, of your uh, who were some of your jazz guys? Who were you playing? Well, I was playing what they had. Uh, it, it was it was a weird situation because. This was the early 70s. There was a real um, establishment uh, antipathy toward anything that could remotely be considered rock. Okay. And so uh, every album in the vast collection had been gone through by the head of the, the uh, broadcasting department. And uh, X's had been placed against songs that had uh too many drums uh so you could you could get away with uh, glenn miller's in the mood uh you could not get away with uh benny goodman's sing 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 because it had the big drum solo Just too percussive yeah anything anything that smacked of uh rock was out 
Well, that's a really um, interesting period, though, because you've got in the 70s, you've got the rise of the guys who were fusioning a little bit. So you got kind mm-hmm. of uh, weather report. Not on our station. Not on your station. OK. Not on our no station. No place for uh, Sparrow Gyra or Pat Metheny or any of that oh, shit. No. no. Okay. Oh, no. No, no. It was it was all uh, it was all Tommy Dorsey and uh, Glenn Miller and. Uh, it was big band yeah, was, more even than jazz. So it's not even like um, not even like the '60s stuff. Like I don't hear like a lot of like Mingus or Coltrane or any of that stuff. It oh was God, no. really oh, wow. no, 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 super no, no. traditional. You could you could you could play Django Reinhardt. Uh, you could play Stefan Grappelli. You could play cool jazz if it was old enough. Um, but the moment somebody hit uh, a drum head more than four times in uh, 10 seconds, you were in trouble. <laughs> so what, so let's talk about radio for the actual practice of doing radio. I, I used college radio to get over a horrible fear of public speaking I had. Um, uh-huh. and because I could, you know, talk to, you know, 4,000 people that I couldn't see, it was great for me. Right. Um, right. how has it, if at all affected your, your acting? Did it, did it, what did you learn from doing, doing radio? I don't know. I never thought about it. Um, it was, I knew that there was a performance connection. Um, I was not, on one hand, I wasn't the kind of DJ that I liked listening to in those days, the uh, the, the uh, late night FM guys, uh, when that was really beginning to change radio. Um, well, what were the kind of DJs was, you liked listening to, like the, the longer? Well, it was... There was a guy. There was a guy named Buzz Kinney in the local area. He ended up directing me in a play, actually. But uh, but he was he was the all right now. This is uh, you're listening to Velvet Underground, whatever the station was, and uh, that was a pretty deep cut in that track. And uh, we'll be right back. Well, I loved listening to those guys, but. Uh, uh, other than joking around, I mean, it, once in a blue moon at two o'clock in the morning, I might during my classical uh, uh, program, and I, I might do uh, and the music of Ludwig van Beethoven rocks on here on KCSC FM ninety point one in Oklahoma. <laughs> but if anybody in administration had heard me do that, uh, I'd have gotten a call. Um, <laughs> Because it was, it was, it was just basic. The most outrageous I ever got uh, in in my easy listening show. One day I played something like five different versions of "In the Mood" in a row. Wow, um, that's fun though. I always think stuff like that is really interesting, particularly oh, yeah. with jazz, because there there's so many different ways to interpret that kind of classic melody. Yeah. Well, the the phone did ring after about the fifth <laughs> one, and it said, "Okay, new song." And uh, and then on, uh, I did a bir- uh, a birthday tribute to Beethoven, uh, in which I did a twenty four hour marathon of his music. And uh, as the evening got later, uh, once every hour or so, I would play. I think maybe it was Glenn Gould who did a version of happy birthday done as if Beethoven had written it. And it was, it was, uh, you know, 
And I would play that at the top of the hour and just say, you know, we're having a birthday celebration for Beethoven. And I did another one of those for Mozart. But, you know, it was, for the most part, it was very, very traditionally old. And uh, my little rebellions were little. I, I, there was a station, there was a classical station in uh, New York, the call letters for which escaped me, but they would try to jazz it up. Or not. They would try to make it uh, hipper by doing like the, the hot 20 from 1810. And uh, yeah. and they would kind of, uh, you know, Casey Kasem it as much as they could while, uh, yeah. uh, while, while playing uh, the, a little of the old Ludwig van. I want to skip ahead a few years. Um, your first big film role is a really interesting piece of work um, in country starring Bruce Willis about um, this is I'm mean, not your not your first film role, but the first like really major, major role. It was it was my big break. Yeah. And it's an interesting piece of work, no matter what killer cast. Um, uh, you've got Bruce Willis. You've got you, Emily Lloyd. I want to say is Tobolowski in there. Or am I crazy? Stephen Tobolowski's in it. Uh, Joan Allen. Joan Allen. Uh, oh my God. Uh, yeah, it. Uh, um, uh, Kevin Anderson. It was. Yeah, it was a great. Film. Insane cast, and yeah. it's about Vietnam veterans. And as far as my research has shown, you're the only actual Vietnam veteran in the cast. Is that right? In the in the principal in the principal cast, cast. There, were, okay. there were a lot of real vets uh, in in the background in the atmosphere. Uh, we shot, uh, we, we really, uh, invited the local Vietnam vets in, in and around Paducah, Kentucky, where we shot. We, we invited them to be part of it. And there's a big Veterans Day dance, uh, sequence. Great scene. That, uh, that is, uh, uh, other than the principal cast and myself, everybody else in on screen is is a veteran or their or one of their wives. It pulls off so, a real uh, authenticity shooting in Kentucky and not shooting in like you know Santa Clarita for Kentucky, which is so often the case in right. in in, yeah. in Hollywood films. Um, did you feel? Listen to, did you feel like your experience uh, uh, helped that authenticity? Did you were, I, I want to hope that people were checking in with you. It's like, is this right? Are we doing this okay? I don't necessarily remember a great deal of that, but I know that that they came to me for uh, props and photographs. My audition uh which is a story in and of itself, but my, it. at my Let's audition, well, I mean, uh, I, the reason you're talking to me now is because I walked out of a door at precisely the right moment. Uh, and, uh, 30 seconds earlier or later, you'd probably be talking to somebody else. Now. Um, uh, I had been writing television and, uh, but I hadn't been, getting acting work. I didn't even have an agent. Um, but I had a very powerful agent for my, uh, television writing. Uh, and, uh, but we were in the middle of the 1988 writer's strike and there wasn't anything to do. 
uh, I couldn't, all I could, I could write spec scripts, but I couldn't pitch anything. I could, and nobody could take a meeting with me. And, uh, and I spent a lot of time at my agent's office, uh, just shooting the breeze about the business or whatever else came up. And this one particular day, um, I decided to head home and beat the traffic and he walked me to his office door. And just as we were saying goodbye, a woman walked by and he said, Oh, let me introduce you to Eileen. And he introduced me to Eileen Feldman, who was uh, uh, a talent agent, a theatrical and actor's agent at the, at the same agency. And we said, hello. And then she stopped for a second and said, are you an actor? And I said, yeah. She said, are you represented? I said, no. And she said, well, you might be right for this movie that Norman Jewison is casting. And I have a client who has an appointment with him tomorrow. Uh, but my client just booked another film at Conflict. So what would you think about me submitting you for this, uh, uh, plugging you into his uh, appointment? Which gives you an idea how powerful the agency was because uh, most agencies couldn't do that. Uh, but these guys were big enough to say, hey, you're not seeing so-and-so, you're seeing this guy. And um, I, of course, was uh, hard put to hide my delight uh, and, uh, and she sent me into this, this audition. Um, I gave me a copy of the script. The next day I went in to meet Norman, uh, and it was just me and him. And, uh, uh, there wasn't even a casting director involved. Um, I'm not there. And, uh, but I had read the script overnight and worked on the, the, uh, audition material and I knew what it was. And I came in and I, uh, uh, as we were starting to talk, I said, uh, you know, there's a scene in the script where um, one of the characters is pinning photos on the bulletin board before this veterans dance. And it's all photos of the guys uh, when they were in Vietnam. Uh, of course, the film takes place several years after the war. And I, I held up a, a black and white photograph of myself in Vietnam. And I said, is this the sort of thing you were thinking of? And he took it and looked at it and said, wow. And that same photograph, full screen, opens the veterans dance sequence of the movie. It was serendipitous. I, I walked through a door at the right moment and, uh, I, uh, I, I walked into Norman Jewison's office and I was the only person there I'd never heard of. And, uh, I read for him and I showed him my photo. And a couple of days later, I had the part. And, uh, uh, I went from not having an agent to having main title billing on, uh, a movie starring Bruce Willis directed by Norman Jewison who had just come off of, I think, a soldier story or no, he had just come off Moonstruck. Oh my um, God. So he, yeah, he was doing okay. Yeah. And, so he, um, he's a hot, he's untouchable. Bruce Willis is at the peak of yeah. his powers, uh, pre diehard anyway, but he's getting a lot of stuff done yeah. or is it right? Well, diehard came, diehard came out while we were shooting. Wow. And, and, uh, and, and the world changed for him. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so it was a magnificent confluence of circumstances that uh, 
I don't know if in country did Bruce Willis much good other than he got a lot of respect for it. He got a Golden Globe nomination. Uh, but it, uh, turned my life around completely. Well, that's what, yeah, that's, that's who we're talking to. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not worried about Bruce. I, you know, I think something like that yeah. can never hurt an actor. You know, he's coming off a, a pretty fluffy TV show. He's establishing himself as an action star, but to do someone, to do a character who's going through some, some trauma and trying to reassimilate that, that only shows range. And, uh, I think yeah. he's better yeah. off for it. And I think it's the best thing he ever did. He's great. Frankly. He's great in it. I think he's wonderful. You mentioned your writing career. You have some, some TV credits and you've written a ton of plays. Um, you're still yeah. very involved in theater how has it mm -hmm. affected, how is it, uh, how does writing affect your acting? How does acting affect your writing? I always find that actors are going to write the better dialogue because they're keenly aware that people are actually going to have to say this shit. Absolutely. Yeah. How do the two crafts kind of uh, uh, help each other? Well, I, I've always written from an actor's perspective because that was what I was interested in first and uh, and what it, what I was I was already somewhat experienced as an actor before I ever tried to write dialogue. And, uh, uh, and it, it's a rule for me as I'm writing that at, at some point in the writing process, I'm going to say these words out loud and see how they fit the mouth and how they sound. Uh, because an awful lot of people, uh, write stuff that nobody says it until they're on a soundstage. And then you find out it doesn't sound right. Um, there's a, there's a flow to speech that, um, uh, you can, the writers often get carried away with the literary beauty of what they're writing, not realizing that, uh, you cannot take dialogue straight out of a Thomas Wolfe novel and say it on screen and sound like a human being. Uh, it's gorgeous, gorgeous writer. Wolf is my favorite novelist, but, uh, uh, the written word is far different from the spoken word. And, uh, the trick is to find the perfect melding of the two. And, uh, that's, uh, that's how I look at it. My job as a writer is to convey all of the thoughts and emotions that I need to convey in a way that an actor can say and make real. And, uh, and that includes also uh, paying attention to what it's like to be an actor. Um, uh, I remember doing um, a play once where I had to go off stage and completely change my wardrobe. This actually happened to me twice. I had to go from pajamas to full military Scotch uniform with a kilt and a sporran and boots. And I had 35, 40 seconds to do it. Um, I had to go off stage disguised as a little old lady uh, and come back on in 15 or 20 seconds in white tie and tail. <laughs> in both cases, I thought no actor wrote this. What are these fucking plays you're doing? 
Well, the first one uh, was was uh, the Hasty Heart, uh, which is a gorgeous, beautiful play, one of my favorite roles ever. Uh, but it's man, it's hard changing from pajamas to full military Scots black watch uniform yeah. in thirty seconds. And um, the other was uh, um, uh, Charlie's aunt. Oh, of or, course. You know, <laughs> it's a lot of fun playing the old lady, but then you got to come on in white tie and tails and just seconds and uh you need a lot of help and i thought nobody who's ever acted consistently uh would write a part like a write a costume change like that god no because it's just almost impossible to pull off especially in the days that those plays were written i i I, Um, need an intermission to do that properly really pretty much pretty much I mean, nowadays they've got tricks that are astonishing, even on stage. But, uh, uh, and I also know that I never write a one or two line character who doesn't have a name. Uh, uh, it helps the actor feel like a real person, even if he's just the horses are ready, my lord. <laughs> uh, uh, and in fact, uh, the, the big film that I just finished recently, uh, uh, Guillermo del Toro's movie, um, uh, Nightmare Alley. That's a Tyrone Power movie? The Tyrone Power film from 1947, uh, which is a great film in and of itself. But he offered me this role, and uh, and it's a wonderful role, but I but it, it only had uh, a job title. It was sheriff. And I said, I will happily do the role, but I would be very pleased if you gave him a name because acting a part without a name, acting a part that is just a title or just a job, plumber number one, it's very disheartening for the actor who gets it because he feels like even the writer doesn't care who he is. And so I don't write small characters who only have job descriptions. Um, even if, even if they're, even if I don't give them real names that are spoken on screen, I give them names in the script. So yeah, it has that effect on me. I, uh, uh, and as an actor, having written a lot of scenes for actors, I know how much work goes into the writing of dialogue. And I am not one of those actors who changes dialogue, uh, if I can possibly avoid it, I, the letter of the script is my Bible. And my job is not to figure out how to improve the writing. My job's to deliver it and interpret it in the way that the writer saw, uh, in his vision of what he was writing. Now, sometimes you come up against dialogue that the writer doesn't understand how hard it is to say these words in this order in this situation. And then sometimes a conference is called for. And, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm very happy to say, is there a way I could say this with a contraction or something like that? But barring either a, a, a dead writer or one who is completely unavailable, I do my best to stick to the script because I've written and I know how much work went into forming those precise words in that precise 
measure of rhythm and tone. And I don't want anybody messing with my dialogue. So why should I mess with somebody else's? My follow-up question then is if you are working with someone whose dialogue does tilt towards the literary, such as, let's say, David Bilch, do you have certain... Is part of the fun of it like, okay, this is incredibly flowery Dickensian wordcraft. Is it just like, let's see how I can make this sound like it's just falling out of my mouth? Do you talk to David? When you're dealing with somebody like Milch, where the dialogue is floral and wonderful, but hard and not not naturalistic. Well, here's the answer to that is when you're working with David Milch, the best way to approach it is as if you were working for Shakespeare, because nothing I suggest is going to improve it. Nothing I suggest is going to make it shine more. My job there is to find the way to say it so that it feels real, that it sounds real, even though in both in both the case of Milch and of Shakespeare, it's heightened language. And my job is not to bring it down to earth. Now, if you are doing Fast and Furious 7, and there's a line in there that sounds like somebody's attempt at Shakespeare, if it's not obviously an attempt at that, then I'm going to say, is there a way we can make this more real? Because everything else we're saying is very uh, gritty, down to earth, and non-florid. And uh, uh, but if you're working on a on a milk show, the nature of the body of material is such that that's that's the playing field. Uh, you're when you're when you're shooting a Deadwood script. You are not shooting a Magnum PI script. And you shouldn't try to make the Deadwood script sound like Magnum PI. Just as you shouldn't slip a little bit of Deadwood into a Magnum PI script unless you're commenting on it in some way. That would be pretty jarring. Yeah. I mean, anybody can say, you know, to live or die, that's the real question here. But it doesn't fit in Hamlet. And so. The actor's job is to make to be or not to be, that is the question, sound like this ancient prince mulling it over in his own head and not to sound like uh, everybody else on TV. That so it's not a question of bringing the dialogue down to earth. It's a question of rising to meet the dialogue. You rise to meet the dialogue. You make you take the dialogue, regardless of its floweriness or its intricacy, uh, and you find a way to say it that feels like a human being who thinks and talks like this would say it. And that's the key to Milch. It's the key to Shakespeare. And uh, now Milch is pretty much the only person in television I've ever worked for that comes anywhere close to matching Shakespeare in terms of the intricacy and poetry and beauty of his language. But 
uh, that's not to say there aren't others, and uh, but that's my experience. My job isn't. I'm the interpreter. I'm the. Uh, I'm not the chef. <laughs> I'm the spoon who stirs the soup with, mm. and I just make sure that my spoon is the right size and shape for the job. But he's stirring the soup, man, not me. A reliable spoon, also a really good epitaph, as long as we're pitching right now? Yeah, so far, you know, none of this stuff is uh, going into my will to be put on my tombstone. But uh, I like the idea of being, uh, you know, more often I've used musical uh, analogies. I'm not the composer. I'm not the conductor. I'm not the notes. I'm the clarinet. Hmm. Hmm. And uh, uh, and I want the director is the player. Hmm. Uh, uh, I'm the instrument. Wow, play me! But I've got to be in tune every time I come to work. Sure, and I've got to be in tune with that particular kind of music. Yeah. We're going to talk briefly about The Ranch, which is the Netflix sitcom mm-hmm. that you did um, where you play, uh, is it Elisha Cuthbert's dad? Yeah. yeah. So this amazing Christmas episode, um, you're in it um, with just an awful lot of cursing in church. Um, uh, <laughs> it's such, had you done much multicam sitcom work before then? The first series I was ever a regular on uh, was a sitcom. What was that? Uh, it was called Thunder Alley. It was with uh, Ed Asner. Yes, I remember and, that. Yes. And, and a little five-year-old boy named Haley Joel Osmond. Sure. And, uh, uh, and it was great fun, but it was very weird to me because I was starring on a sitcom never having done one before. And uh, uh, I had never even done a guest shot. On wow. I remember being told by Matt Williams, the uh, creator, producer, co-producer, uh, that they were sitting up in the writer's room one day and they had the feed on from the set. Uh, just the cameras were always on and, and uh, apparently the microphones too. And they said that they overheard me talking to a crew person saying, I don't know how I got here. <laughs> I've never done a comedy in my life on television. Uh, and so I don't, I have no idea why they hired me for this job. And they were all laughing up there, but it turned out they had seen, they had seen in country, uh, which is a, a fairly stark drama. And, uh, but they thought that the guy who was in in country could probably do their show. I don't know why there was, the parts were so incredibly different. <laughs> I basically played the village idiot on, uh, uh, Thunder Alley, but they got a big laugh out of overhearing me saying, I don't know how I am here. But anyway, the ranch was. I had done, I had done guest shots on several other uh, sitcoms, Mike and Molly, and uh, Home Improvement, and uh, a few things like that. But I guess the ranch was the first time I was back on a multicam show for any length of time. Uh, oh, I had done a show called uh, The Trouble with Normal, which uh, didn't last very long on ABC, but it was a great deal of fun. David Crumholtz. David Crumholtz. Uh, John Cryer, Paget Brewster, mm-hmm. uh, 
uh, a Brad Raider. It was, um, and I, and a guy who was in the pilot, uh, who only had three or four lines in the pilot that nobody ever heard of again, named John Hamm. Um, yes. I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, uh, Holtz got the role I auditioned for. Um, the, oh, really? uh, <laughs> um, it's fine. He's great. Well, you had lots of opportunities. We shot that pilot four times, I think. <laughs> I remember uh, reading casts. about that. I remember reading about yeah. that, that it got really bounced around a little bit. It was a group therapy uh, show. Yeah. Uh, about a yeah. group therapy group. Yeah. Those are fun because I, I, I've seen your clip from that show and you're you're just sort of the you, you're the guy who comes in random non sequitur, huge laugh exit, um, which are yeah. great gigs to yeah. have. I've had those and yeah. they the check's still clear. They're pretty fun. Yeah, um, absolutely. But I don't think people realize I talk about this on this show all the time. I don't think people realize what a what a weird mix of craft and art acting in a multicam sitcom is. I, yeah. I don't think people realize how hard it is because they rarely see it done poorly because by the time it makes to air, the casting has been fixed and everything's set. And if you just see, you know, the Matthew Perry's. Um, of the world or the Lisa Kudrow's of the world do this. You're like, oh, that looks pretty easy, but it's not. Mm -hmm. It's easy in the sense that the hours are great. The hours are phenomenal. Uh, you, you do four hours of rehearsal a yeah. day and then there's tape night. It's it's like the easiest yeah. half hour play you're going to do all week. But the, the, the work itself is weird. It's also a play that you rehearse and every single night they change your lines. And, uh, uh, so you're rememorizing and sometimes, you know, the, the, the gut punch for me would be, I would have a great laugh line and, but I would maybe stumble or deliver it badly in rehearsal and they would cut it mm. and I'm like, no, no, I can make that work. I can make that work. It's a great line. But they're no, 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 no. I didn't get a laugh from the network. So, you know, it's out of there. And uh, and then half the time they replace it with something. And then and then a lot of times on on tape night when everything's dying on the vine, they go back and give you the line from Monday that was perfectly fine to begin right. with. That's right. happened to right. me on, on numerous occasions. There's also the fact that if you've got if you are not the main character, but you have the laugh line button of the scene, it's probably not going to make it to air because they're going to want to go out on the main character. So they'll they'll cut the scene when the last laugh comes from the main character. Even though you were the one um, that just brought the house down with, you know, whatever yeah, crazy non sequitur exactly. they, they fed you. Yeah. That, that has happened to me more times than I, uh, I care to discuss. <laughs> um, it's such yeah. a weird, um, it's such a weird sort of theater with a safety net doing sitcoms. Cause there mm -hmm. is an audience, but you're allowed to fuck up, but don't fuck up too much. Yeah. But they don't mind seeing a blooper. Yeah. But go easy. Have your stuff together. Yeah. Um, and yeah. then there's that adrenaline rush of being fed an alt line that, like, okay, here's your new line. Say it back to me. Go. Right. Which, right. It, which is right. not for everybody, but I, um, uh, I, I dig it a lot. Let's talk for a moment about Supernatural. Supernatural, you did pretty hot on the heels uh, of Deadwood. Um, yeah. And they actually overlap. Did they? Okay. That's why I have a beard on Supernatural. Oh, wow. Really? You were going to be clean shaven, because, but you had Ellsworth's beard. Well, I mean, normally, I mean, I spent the first half of my career with just a mustache playing cops. <laughs> and uh, and then I got Deadwood. They asked me to grow the beard and I kept it. Between seasons, I would always shave it off. 
and then let it grow back for the next season. And then I got offered the Supernatural episode. Uh, I had filmed what turned out to be my last episode of Deadwood. But uh, at the time, David wanted to hang on to me because he had he had plans for some kind of an appearance in the final episode of that season. Some sort of flashback uh, or something? Or? But, yeah. And they didn't, and we didn't know it was the end of the show either. And so he wasn't sure whether he was going to need me. So he said, you can go do this episode of Supernatural, but you keep the beard. So I kept the beard, and then Supernatural ran for 15 years. <laughs> and, but it's such a, I mean... He's a good guy. He's got another good moral center, but he's much more of a badass than Ellsworth. Was that um, incredibly fun or challenging? Oh well, I think I think I think Ellsworth was a pretty badass when he was off, offered the opportunity to be. But I get your point. Uh, yeah, it was great fun. It was great fun. It's always fun playing somebody who's as sarcastic as you are, who's <laughs> as uh, grumpy as you are and who's smarter and braver than you are it was a great role to have and my inner uh curmudgeon uh was given free reign there <laughs> and uh uh but it was also the surprising thing about supernatural was that first of all that was never a show i was going to watch uh uh, it was my kind of thing. I was, I was, I was a, a Deadwood fan. Oz, West Wing. Uh, I, I really dug, uh, uh, you know, intricate dramas. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I knew about Supernatural because it was, it was two hot guys chasing demons. That's all I knew. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't the target audience. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, and uh, to my shock, I got on the show and discovered that some of the most powerful and affecting dramatic scenes of my entire career were on that show about two hot guys chasing demons. Well, I mean, you get you get a death scene, you get a bunch of, you know, you're... you're I get more than one death scene. What am I saying? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <You know. laughs> were, were you... Because you joined Supernatural pretty early on, end of the first season, is that right? I came in the last episode of the first season. So the show hasn't become the phenomenon that it grew into. No. I mean, that fandom no. is intense. Ooh. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Do you get stopped a lot for that show? More than anything else. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm not I'm not one of those guys who gets stopped on the street three times a day. No, of course not. No, but I mean, no, no one no one who's been on my show thus far is is that type. I'm not interested in those guys. You catch me in the right locale. And it can happen. I mean, I you know nobody in Hollywood notices me on the street, but in Omaha, uh, jaws drop on occasion. Yeah, uh, because they don't expect to see me there, and uh, and that's where that's where my folks live. That's where that's where the audience is. Right. You know, it's it's a it's a middle America show, even though it's a middle America show that spreads all around the globe. Sure. I get I get more recognition from that than anything. Uh, but uh, the great thing about being on a show that's on for 15 years that has that kind of fan base is that eventually they start discovering the other stuff you do. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so uh, I, 
it's uh, I don't think many people outside the business knew who I was before Supernatural. Mm. Uh, nobody outside the business knew who I was. Nobody inside the business knew who I was before Deadwood. Mm. And uh, so those two things put me pretty much where I needed to be. Well, it's interesting because there's, there's a sort of thing that I like to call casting director famous. Um, where, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, where like the casting director is like, oh yeah, no, Jim Beaver is great. Jim Beaver is going to come and he's going to crush it. Yeah. We could probably do a straight offer, but he's going to read the pants off of it. Um, and that's a great place to be. Casting director famous is yeah. decent yeah. and you're going to qualify yeah. for insurance, but there is, there are a couple yes. levels above that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, well, there's the level where you're hiring the casting. Director. <laughs> uh, 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 perchance to yeah. dream. Yeah. Um, yeah. the, um, uh, in a perfect world, you'd be stopped on the street and recognized for for the biography of John Garfield that you wrote. The <laughs> the um, which I I was this fucking I ordered it and they were like, great, it's on the way. And then they said uh, the store was like, our bad, we don't actually have it in stock. And I I didn't go to just Amazon. I went I went digging. Now what I take this to mean is that nobody wants to part with their copy. Or no, that's what I take it to mean. No one wants to part with their copy. You buy that John Garfield okay, book that I'll... is part of your library for the rest of your life. Um, I will admit to being a little ignorant of the man. I knew I knew the hits. I knew uh, mm-hmm. I knew Postman. I knew Gentleman's Agreement. I don't think I realized that he was very, very genuinely a casualty of the blacklist. Yeah, I mean, I, I knew he'd been caught up in that. I knew he'd been been part of the whole Huax shit show. I didn't realize that it, for all intents and purposes, killed him. Yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, we're talking about a guy who had a bad ticker all along, right? But, but um, even guys with bad tickers rarely die at thirty nine. Dick Cheney is still with us, Jim. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, um. And I'd trade in a heartbeat. Uh, but <laughs> what uh, was it about Garfield that drew you? I wrote the book while I while I was in college, which in hindsight probably wasn't the best for my GPA. But there were a lot of that kind of book, uh, what they call filmographies, which is uh, a biographical section followed by an examination of each film, and. Uh, there were a lot of those out there, and I kept thinking, I could do this, I could do this. And, of course, being young and naive, I thought there was money in it. And, uh, uh, Another get-rich-quick so, scheme with a John Garfield uh, biography. Right. And if that doesn't work, my so Paul I, Muni will knock him dead. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I made a list of actors that, I, that interested me, and I thought that I could accomplish while I was still attending college. And, uh, and I liked Garfield a lot. And, but I think that the thing that, that really, uh, kicked it off was that of all the people on my list, he had done the least films, the fewest films. And so I thought, oh, this is something I can accomplish within a certain time frame and, and get rich and not need a degree. And it uh, it took longer than I expected to to write the book, but it only took me a couple of months. And I might I don't know that I how much I would have accomplished if I had chosen somebody with 150 films as opposed to, to 35 or 40. And uh, but I was I was very happy about that. I was 
flattered. I'm surprised, but I was flattered when when Garfield's daughter told me that it's her favorite book mm. about the fight. Oh my god! Um, but uh, at the same time, I look back on it as, oh yeah, a college kid wrote this. Mm. Um, so um, uh, uh, and and the the vast um, wealth that I thought was attendant on writing a book like that eluded me. Uh, as well, but um, uh, but I'm proud of it because I I don't know a lot of people who wrote a wrote and published a book while they were in college. No, I I know very few, and um, and the ones who did probably uh, wrote it on the uh, refuting the theory of relativity. It, it's a a heartbreaking story because the stress of of being blacklisted really took a toll on the guy. But he was yeah. able to, um, you know, blacklist didn't really reach New York theater. So he was able to move back right. and, and get a lot of work with, uh, with Clifford Odets and a lot of the usual suspects yeah. at times like that. And that leads me seamlessly to your theatrical career. I found an amazing photo, a series of photos actually of you in the man who came to dinner. Oh my. Yeah. yeah. Um, I did that right before COVID. But. Oh my God. Really that recently, my God, that's really an interesting. And I was like, I mean, I'm always super excited when TV people do theater uh, because it's, it's something we're all trying to do. I actually switched mm -hmm. agents right before the pandemic because I wanted to do more theater because my timing is impeccable, uh -huh. impeccable. <laughs> Just come at me. I really, I've got, I'm playing yep. all the angles, but um, what is interesting about that role in particular is, you know, he's this rather effete drama critic. He's based on Robert Benchley. He's confined to a wheelchair for uh, most of the show. It You play, a, if I may, a lot of hillbillies or, or, or mm. archetypes around that. And to play this character who is quite literally plucked from the Algonquin Roundtable had to have been a real treat. Was that a... Was this something you sought out? Was it uh, what was the adjustment like? It was something that was offered to me. It was it was an interesting coincidence. I had been thinking about what I would like to do in theater, and I was thinking about roles that uh, I thought would either be fun or challenging or both. And I had only a matter of two three days before been thinking, you know, maybe came to dinner with. I bet that would be fun. And a couple of days later, somebody called up and said, do you want to do it? And, uh, and I, I said, absolutely, yes. And then I dug out the script and realized that this guy talks for two hours and 45 minutes at a rapid pace and never stops. Yeah. And I thought, you know. But one of the things that did draw me to it was the fact that he was so different from what I normally get cast in, in film and television. Uh, and I've done a lot of, uh, a wide range of stuff in the theater. My range in film and television has not been quite as wide. Yeah, I was the, uh, village idiot on Thunder Alley for a couple of years, but for the most part, it's been cops and sheriffs and bad guys and, all, usually with a rural tinge. Uh, I, my, my gruff but lovable is my, uh, <laughs> is kind of my, my wheelhouse. Do you know Spencer, and, do you know Spencer Garrett? Oh God, yes, I know. Okay, Spencer did the yeah, show a couple yeah. weeks ago and he was talking about his era of pricks in suits. 
Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, he was he was a prick in a suit when I first met him on on a show called Reasonable Doubts. Oh, right. And I was playing a cop. Reasonable Doubts. Wait, I is that is that Mark Harmon? Mark Harmon and Lee Matlin, right? With uh, he yeah. he Mark Harmon had to learn sign language for that role. Yes, I remember that. Right. Go ahead. <laughs> and I knew sign language, and I was always going, "What is she saying?" <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it was a weird. That was a weird thing. But yeah, I know Spencer from that, and that's it. You know, when I when I start out, first meeting I ever had with an agent in Hollywood, uh, she said, uh, "So what kind of roles do you see yourself play, playing?" And I knew from reading many, 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 many actors' biographies, I knew not to fall in the trap of saying, I can do everything. (laughs) I knew that maybe I could do everything, but that's not, they they don't know what to do with somebody who can do everything. They don't want options. they They know what to do with somebody who has a pigeonhole. And I said, I want to play the kind of parts that Warren Oates isn't playing anymore. And she said, that is a great way to look at it. We're not in a visual medium, but I literally just pumped my fist at the mention of Warren Oates. The weird thing is that's kind of what happened. Yeah. Uh, I, I not, not, not that I achieved his level of notice, but the kinds of parts I played, for the most part, part are things he could have done and done and shined in. Well, I want to I want to put this in historical perspective for a moment, and I I would only do this mm-hmm. with you. Um, Warren Oates was of an era where a guy like Warren Oates could be number one on the call sheet. Let's keep yeah. in mind that this is a guy who makes his bones in the seventies when like likable schmikable that's our hero you know and so he's 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 that whole era of like uh we need a sexy romantic lead get me walter Matthau. that is long exactly behind us now uh uh, the the, the playing field is not the same yeah um if they were doing bring me the head of alfredo garcia right now it would be timothy chalamet yeah Um, or it would be six episodes on a streamer that neither you or i have heard of exactly now, we're, we've kind of circled around this anyway. I ask everybody who their favorite character actors, uh, the guys in the corner of the screen where you were mm-hmm. like, hmm, that guy. I like that guy. I want to watch that guy some more. I had a whole list of those guys. I had a feeling you did. Yeah. Uh, and I, I still do. I mean, uh, uh, Lee Van Cleef, mm. Struther Martin, Ward Bond. Um, and, uh, and of course, I'm sure this popped up in your research, but I... I actually ended up connected to one of them, uh, an actor named, character actor named Hank Worden, who is best known for having played, uh, uh, old modes in John Ford's The Searchers, which is a very memorable character. And, um, I wrote him a fan letter when I was a kid and he wrote back and we started a correspondence that ended up in uh, me sharing a house with him for years after I moved to Hollywood. That's right. And he and, was an uh, he was an authentic cowboy at the sort of the twilight yeah. of the West who became an actor. Yeah. yeah. He had he had been a he had been a rodeo cowboy and a a, 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 a guide on the Grand Canyon and, and that sort of thing. But and who just fell into doing westerns. But uh uh but I, I, he was one of those guys that I didn't know his name for years. I just saw him in movies 
and said, who is that guy? And, uh, and I lucked out to, you know, he ended up being like a grandfather to me. Oh my God. Uh, and, uh, and, and then through him, I got to meet some of my other, uh, heroes, uh, um, uh, like Harry Perry Jr. Oh my God. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, uh, I was, I, I got into all of this because I was a giant film buff as a teenager. Yeah. And the, the fact that I got to know and on one or two occasions actually work with people that I had idolized when I was a kid is one of the greatest things about my whole story. Uh, forget being recognized in a 7-Eleven or getting paid well. The fact that uh, in 1969, I asked character actor John Anderson for his autograph in the uh, L.A. bus station. And 10 years later, I was in a movie with him. Oh, my God. Uh, that the fact that uh, my favorite movie as a kid was John Wayne's 1960 film, The Alamo. Mm -hmm. And 30 years later, I was shooting a film on the same set. Uh, for a film buff and a film historian, this stuff is almost the best part of it. I, I feel like we, we almost get paid in anecdotes sometimes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and I'm, I'm at peace with, with that. Um, I want to talk for a moment about Lee Van Cleef since you brought him up. Um, he is such an interesting case because he straddles a couple generations. My dad turns me on to Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and then I turn my dad on to Escape mm -hmm. from New York. Um, mm -hmm. And he has this great run. Died awfully young. Died in the 80s, I want to say. Yeah. He had that thing that a lot of bald guys have where he looked like he was middle-aged at 28 and then looked that way to the day he died. <laughs> yeah, 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 um, yeah. I'm just going wildly gray. I'm aging like an apple core. But like Lee Van Cleef had this thing where his, his he lost his hair and then, hi, I am permanently 50. How are you? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, what yeah. was it about yeah. that guy? Well, first of all, he had this magnificent face yeah. that that uh, this this hawk nose, this slit eyed look that uh, there there was. I I've often joked around that I would have loved to. I would have liked Kramer versus Kramer a whole lot more if Lee Van Cleef had been playing with Dustin Hoffman. Oh my god! Uh, <laughs> all right, I hang on. No, you don't think you're not breezing past that. Explain. <laughs> no, because I mean. That I'm quirky like that. I want to see guys who only do this do that. Okay, I hear that. All right, fair enough. You know, it's the same thing in my own career. We were talking about Man Who Came to Dinner. Nobody in movies and TVs cast me as Sheridan Whiteside. Right. But I wanted to see, can I play this effete sort of social pelican <laughs> when that's not what I usually do. Right, right. And and I always thought, I want to see Lee Van Cleef in a, in a romantic comedy yeah. as the lead. I want to, you know, uh, um, I want to see Struther Martin do, uh, you know, Death of a Salesman. Sure, sure. Uh, I want to, I love seeing it mixed up. But I'll tell you a Lee Van Cleef story. While I was in the Marines, I was driving home from Los Angeles to um, Dallas. And uh, I'm leaving la on on the 10 freeway and somewhere around 
I don't know, Pomona or something like that. I pull up behind a gold Cadillac convertible. And as I pull around it, I glance over and it's Lee Van Cleef driving down the road in this gold Cadillac convertible with a cigarette holder. And I glance at him and now I'm, I'm in danger of wrecking myself because I can't take my eyes off of him. And he, he, uh, uh, he looks over and gives me a little wave and, uh, and then I pass him, but now I can't, I can't go as fast as I want to go because he's not going as fast as I want to go. So I'm dropping back and I'm, I'm pulling next to him. I'm getting behind him. I'm circling around. I'm just, I'm stalking him on the freeway. And, uh, and then we, this goes on for like 70 miles to, uh, Palm Springs. <laughs> and then, uh, and then, he pulls off to go into Palm Springs, and I do too. And now I pull up next to him at a traffic light, and now I'm, we're both stopped. And I and I can gaze upon him in all his his Lee Van Cleef glory. And uh, and he looks over at me and he says, uh, "How you doing?" And I'm just like, ah, 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 ah. And then the light changes, and he goes on, and I U turn and go back to get on the freeway to go to Dallas, but. So that was me stalking Lee Van Cleef. That's uh, what happens uh, if the bad actually gets the gold at the end of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Is he yeah, buys a he yeah. buys a gold Cadillac? I'm assuming. And then flash forward a few years, my friend Hank Worden uh, asked me to accompany him to Lee Van Cleef's funeral. Oh my god! Uh, oh my! Which is where I, which is where I met Clint Eastwood. Oh lord! So, <laughs> oh lord! It's a strange world, man. It's a strange. Lee world. Van Cleef's funeral must have been. In, I mean, it must have looked like the back lot in the 1960s. I mean, that, yeah, I, that, that's fucking bonkers. Yeah. I want to talk about your T-shirts for a moment, which is not something I had on my list. You're wearing a T-shirt right now. This is not a visual medium, but your T-shirt right now has Laurel and Hardy in the iconic uh, Julius and Vincent pose from Pulp Fiction. It is a glorious, glorious shirt. I found an interview uh, with you, a video interview on like a morning news show from a couple of years ago where you had another shirt on. Before I go further, the thing about doing like morning news shows is they're always really religious about, listen, don't wear any graphics, don't wear anything, mm -hmm. no logos, don't wear any pictures, it's not going to look good on video, um, it's a whole rights issue, don't do it. But you show up for this interview in what appears to be a Yojimbo t-shirt. Oh, yeah. You know the yeah. Yojimbo shirt? Yeah. It is a Yojimbo shirt, right? Well, I've got three or four of them. So. Three or four Yojimbo shirts. They're different. That's magnificent. Three or four different ones. Yeah. I have an all Kurosawa shirt in the closet that's just little icons from all of all of the movies. And then oh, I, wow. I had the Seven Samurai flag for a while on a shirt. I don't know what the fuck happened to that. My son probably oh. stole it. Um, what is it about Kurosawa aside from, you know, everything? But did you get into him early on or did you get into him through Westerns? No, I had a friend back in the 70s in Dallas who dragged me much against my will, to see Yojimbo. And I didn't want to go because as far as I knew, it was, it, it just seemed like, you know, I didn't know the difference between that and 
uh, Hong Kong Kung Fu movies, which I had no interest in. And uh, I, I was I was not uh, a Bruce Lee camp follower, nothing against him, but it, it wasn't my thing. And uh, and I thought that's what I was being dragged to. And then I saw Yojimbo and I thought, oh, my world has just opened up. And fortunately, I was at the time working at a 16 millimeter film rental library. And they had all of Kurosawa. Uh, and so my introduction to Kurosawa was taking Seven Samurai and Kiru and Hidden Fortress and The Idiot and, uh, uh, Rashomon home on, at night and running them on 16 millimeter on my living room wall. Oh my God. And I just immersed myself in them. And then I realized there were a few Japanese films, some Kurosawa films, a lot of Mifune films that weren't available with English subtitles. And so I started studying Japanese because I wanted to see them in the original Japanese because that was the only way. And, uh, and so I learned a fair amount of Japanese. It never pay- paid off in that particular sense, but I ended up going to Japan and I, uh, I ended up corresponding with Kurosawa. I've got a Christmas card that he hand painted. That he uh, hand painted. So he hand painted. Yeah. Yeah, because he, he was a, he was a beautiful he was a beautiful uh, visual yeah, yeah, artist. Beautiful artist. So you know this this buddy of mine who uh, you know this wasn't an intellectual thing. This wasn't oh this is a great artist. Yes, it was just hey this is a cool movie with a bunch of guys fighting with swords. Yeah. And I went, I went to it and it's, and Kurosawa is now one of my two favorite directors. And he's the only major director that I've seen every single one of his films. And, uh, yeah. So yeah, I got t-shirts. Uh, <laughs> who's the other, who's the other director? John I Ford. Gonna, I was going to say, I was going to guess John Ford. Yeah. Um, uh, let me ask you one more of the, the regulation questions here. Um, uh, what I, I ask this of everybody, uh, and I don't mean this in a bitter way. Um, I'm just always curious. Was there a role that got away hmm. in, in film television? Not that much that I can think of. Uh, I don't have any strong memories of, Oh, I almost got to play. I remember a couple of things I wanted pretty bad, but money had a lot to do with wanting them. Pretty bad. Right. I, I look back and and uh, terrific actor named Xander Berkeley. He got a part I wanted in a thing called Shanghai Noon. Sure, uh, and playing a character named after Lee Van Cleef. That's right. Uh, uh, and I really wanted that, but the fact is, uh, I you know it was it was a cool part, but I don't it, it wouldn't have been my it wouldn't have been my uh, 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 there will be blood. Right. Uh, uh, <laughs> You know, in the theater, yeah, I I had dreamed for many years of playing James Tyrone, uh, oh, Jamie yeah, Tyrone okay. in Long Day's Journey and Tonight, and I was putting together a uh, a production. He's the uh, he's the with, drinker who's based on Eugene. He's not the tubercular son, right? Right. Okay. He's the he's the drinker who's based on uh, Eugene's brother. Oh, I'm sorry. Right. Uh, oh, yeah. Right. And, yeah. Yeah, gotcha. Eugene's Eugene is, is the tubercular brother. Neil himself right, was right. the tubercular brother, but I had uh, 
uh, David White, who played Larry Tate on the Bewitched series, of course, uh, uh, was a friend, a member of my theater company. And I had him, I had Betty Garrett as the parents, and Betty's son, my good friend, Andrew Parks, uh, uh, for Edmund. And, and we were, uh, uh, David White and I were just beginning to rehearse our scenes when David died of a heart attack. Mm. And, and it, it fell apart and I've never gotten to play the role and now I'm, I'm too old for it. And then, uh, the year before last, I, um, I had the opportunity to play the father, which is now my goal role. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, I mean, that's a pretty uh, easy transition. I want to see your Edmund. Yeah. But then, uh, I had a little health crisis and had to bow out, but the health crisis is long past. Crisis is not the word, but I had a, I, I just wasn't at that moment well enough to do the part, but, uh, I think it'll come back around at some point. And, uh, I just hope it comes back around while I still remember the line. I cannot but, uh, wait to see it. Not just saying that would yeah. really love to see you in that role, but that's, yeah, that's about it. That's about it. I've gotten most of everything I wanted. That's great. You're the only person who said that. I love it. Um, and, and, and I think I want to end on that. Jim, you are an absolute treasure. Thank you so much for taking the time, you and your three Yajimbo shirts. Uh, I, I am, uh, please, uh, I, I feel like we should come, we should have another episode. Uh, you should circle back and, uh, we're just going to go through that lit. What we're going to do is we're going to, you're going to come back. We're going to go through more character actors and we're going to go through the list of people who were not John Garfield, who didn't make the cut for, I'm going to write a book about them. Okay. Well, as Marlon Brando once said, an actor's a fellow who, if you ain't talking about him, ain't listening. So I'll be glad to come back. I disagree. We've been doing nothing but talking about other people. We spent 20 minutes on George Weiner. What are you talking about? Um, <laughs> it's one of those moments where it's like, I think this is going to be a really fun interview, and it exceeded my expectations. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And that is an episode wrap on Jim Beaver. He is on Twitter at Jumble Jim and on Instagram at Jumble Jimstagram, which I think is terribly cute. Hey, if you're enjoying Household Faces, tell a friend. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Household Faces. You can also go on to whatever podcast app you're using for this and write us a nice review or just, you know, tell a friend. Good old-fashioned word of mouth. Every little bit helps. Please and thank you. Forever Dog. Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Until next time, when's lunch? Mm.